Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I am your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, someone I'm very excited to talk to, a, a record putter-outer, uh, a label head, uh, someone that has written a lot of articles that I love reading, but most importantly for this podcast, at least, uh, he has written a book called Urban Styles, which is a... Rosetta Stone is what I refer to it in the episode as, and Freddie liked it, so we'll go with that, uh, where you link, uh, you're linking hardcore punk with graffiti, and that's two things I'm fascinated by. It's also kind of like a, a, a real direct link between rap and, and hardcore, which are two huge forces that came out of New York at the same time. Anyway, we go into all this and more on that in a second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can head over to DamienAbraham.com. There's a email address there. You can find me on various forms of social media, at Damien. If you would like to find this show on Facebook, there's a Facebook page run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham. And my gosh, he is working on some amazing stuff. I have some unbelievable stuff coming up that Tristan has been chasing down. And wow, you... you Thank, thank you, Tristan. Thank you, Tristan, for all the work you've been doing. But yeah, you can send a, a message to Tristan and thank him yourself if you want while you're at it. And he can get the message to me. He can get the message to, you know, whatever whatever needs to be said. You can get it to Tristan over there at Facebook. And uh, we also post all that same stuff that we get posted on the Facebook page over on a Tumblr page. There's a Turned Out Punk Tumblr as well. If you want to support this show, the best way to do that is by going to iTunes and writing a review and rating it and subscribing to this. And if you don't use iTunes, tell your friends about it. And that's a great way to support. Speaking of support, this show is made possible by the fine folks at Vans. They've come on board, said, book whoever the heck you want. Don't have to do live reads. Don't have to, you know, cut into the episodes. They just want me to do these episodes as is. And it's awesome. So thank you, everyone at Vans, for supporting the show and allowing me to book whoever I want for this thing because that's how we can keep this thing functioning as it is. And now I can, you know, buy the domain of this stuff and, and have a website and all this kind of thing, which I'm working on. But, you know, that stuff takes time. Speaking of time, uh, I guess I got to say I'm now done with that wrestling show that I've been working on. So time again at last to devote to this show. And that means also time again at last because Chris O'Toole's schedule settled down for Turn Out a Punk Footnotes to return. That's right. If you subscribe to this show, you'll see in the feed there's also Turn Out a Punk Footnotes. There's also Oil and Flowers, the cannabis podcast hosted by myself and Boone and Blaze, which is constantly coming out with episodes. But Turn Out a Punk has been on hiatus for a while. We are making a triumphant return. That episode will be dropping this weekend. And it's a, it's a doozy. We got some – both Daves are going to be on it. We got some very important discussions to get to. Uh, I mean that, of course, in the terms of importance as prescribed by Turn Out a Punk, not in the global scheme of importance, where they're quite minor, admittedly, but you know, major for this thing. So listen to that podcast dropping this weekend. Then, uh, yeah, so we have time to return to that. Uh, finish the wrestling show, The Wrestlers, it's coming out. I honestly cannot wait for you to see it. Even if I wasn't on it, this would be my favorite show because it is cool. The stuff I got to see this year was really cool. And now I get to show everyone else. So 
Ooh, buckle up. I'm going to, I will be uh, hopefully giving uh, some more information about that show as it gets closer to the release date, like when it's going to be released. Cause we still don't know, but I'm wrapping up the voiceover stuff and we're finishing uh, editing some stuff and then, yeah, they're going to be ready. And I've seen a bunch of them. Oh my gosh. Ooh, I'm excited for this. Excited for this. Great music. There's one episode with like unbelievable music. The stuff that got licensed for this thing. Oh my gosh. I could talk about wrestling all day and this has nothing to do with wrestling today. It's about some other interests of mine. Today on the show, Freddie Alva. Freddie is someone that I've been a fan of. The records he's put out, of course, the Newbury compilation, War Dance Records, amazing stuff that he put out on that label over the years, you know, since his arrest. Uh, international bands. It's a, it's a fantastic label. Check them out. If you're on the resource, as we call around here, Discogs, you will see that they have put out some unbelievable records over their time. But he's also most recently put out this brand new book, Urban Styles. And this, this is a book that I can't recommend enough because there's things that interest me and I think they're probably shared interests amongst the listeners of this podcast. And those tend to be things about punk. But like, Everyone else, we're interested in all sorts of other types of music too, right? So I'm also into, you know, rap music and hip hop as well. And so this is an incredible book documenting the intersection of these two worlds through graffiti. That's something else I really love. Um, you can find out more information at www.diwolf.com. And uh, there's also a mixtape that he's put out in conjunction with this that we kind of talk about some tracks that are on that in this episode. But I can't recommend this book enough. Also, the book Matinee, which is uh, Radio Rahim put out the record label, but it's also a publishing. Those are the two books that I'm going to recommend that you buy for someone that likes punk over the holidays or for yourself over the holidays because – you know, people know that you need gifts for yourself this time of year, and those are both fantastic books. Um, pick them up at your uh, finer book retailers, hopefully, still, and if not, you can definitely find them online. Uh, so find out more information about both those books online and order both those books, but we're talking about Urban Styles right now, and I can't recommend this book enough. There's a lot of cool people from music that did graffiti that I had no idea did graffiti, and you get to see their work. There's... Yeah, it's it's a labor of love. This is really a labor of love, and thank goodness he, you know, did the labor because now we get to all reap the benefit of flipping through it. Okay, so now without further ado, here is Freddie Alva on Turned Out a Punk. Freddie, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Well, as I was just telling you off air, you know, you're a big inspiration to me. I'm a huge fan of all this stuff you've written, a lot of stuff, like all the stuff I've read that you've written, I should say. And, uh, you know, of course, the New Breed Comp and other stuff you've been involved in as far as music goes. But your new book is, I can't think of a book that I've been more excited about coming out for a long time. So thank I like you for I like what you here. said before. Thank you. I like what you said before the Rosetta Stone. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. It is a Rosetta Stone. I was going to get to that because I think <laughs> yeah. for for me like and I and for a lot of people, I think most people that are, you know, fans of you know w- western rock pop music, uh, all right. forms of music, New York at that time period is is so pivotal and it just changed so much the stuff that came out of there be it 
rap and hip hop or, or hardcore and punk. So, right. you know, you're someone that was there for both sides of it. Uh, extremely lucky to be, uh, I've grown up in, um, New York in the eighties. You know, I came to, uh, New York in, uh, 79, you know, I was born in Peru mm-hmm. and my mom, uh, yeah, we moved in 79. Um, and literally the first image I remember is seeing this on the, uh, elevated subway train, this huge technicolor monster, you know, <laughs> filled train. It, it was incredible. So that, that blew me away, you know, it was like nine, um, and just really sparked an interest, a love for, for graffiti, New York graffiti in particular. Well, I'm, I want to get there and I, and we're going to hopefully talk a lot about graffiti because it's something that I'm, you know, I've got a love for, but don't have a lot of knowledge about, so I can't wait to talk right. to you about it, but I got to start this off the way I start them all off, which is okay, Freddie. Shoot. <laughs> How'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Yes. Yes. Very much so. Um, 84, 1984, uh, I was always listening to um, anything left of the dial on the you know, radio station, if anyone remembers that. Um, and uh, I grew up you know, with hip-hop. Hip-hop was my first love as far as mixtapes, uh, listening to the radio, uh, all these rap shows. But uh, curiosity always you know, got the best of me. I always wanted to listen to anything out there. So I came across this college radio station, and they were playing, I guess, uh, Long before the alternative name was coined, <laughs> they were playing, um, I guess you could call it under the uh, new wave industrial tag. And there was a show called Fun. And this guy was playing um, uh, Clock DVA, Nocturnal Emissions, a lot of like British kind of like uh, pseudo industrial stuff. Yeah, like post punky kind of. Yeah, post punky, yeah, post punk stuff. Uh, and he played uh, Killing Joke. Oh, awesome. And, and I remember taping the show. And the song that always stuck to me the most was War Dance by Killing Joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of sparked uh, an interest of uh, seeking out other stuff that sounded like that. So um, by 85, I was buying more uh, records. Uh, the first, I, w- I was seeking stuff that sounded like Killing Joke. So that led me into discovering more like punk rock, uh, all the classic, you know, British stuff. And that led me to discovering hardcore. So literally the, the first record I bought, a uh, hardcore record I bought was a band called Kraut. It's a New York uh, local Queens band. Uh, they put out a, an amazing album, um, I believe 80, 84, an, uh, an adjustment to society. And mm. that's the first hardcore record I bought. But I can trace it back to listening to Killing Joke, you know, in 84. So that, that's my segue into, into punk. So I jumped straight from hip hop into punk and hardcore. So, uh, other people have different phases, you know, the metal years or new wave or what have you. Uh, I, not for me. I just I went straight from hip hop to punk. That's awesome. So I guess going back to hip hop, how did you first get introduced to that music? Was it just, I guess, you know, you're seeing the graffiti on the uh, on the elevated right, right. trains. Like, was it just around in the air at that point? It was just in, in the neighborhood. You know, I grew up in Jackson Heights, Queens. And, you know, in 1981, 82, hip hop was, you know, was a thing in the neighborhood. Um I believe not too many 12 inches have come out yet. So mixtapes, everyone had a boombox just blasting hip hop. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was my my main intro. And everyone I hung out with, um, you know, was into hip hop. We were all like uh, B boys, you know, wearing uh, Adidas uh, with fat laces, uh, uh, Adidas track suits, <laughs> uh, name plates, you know, Kango hats, you know, the whole look. Uh, if you've seen Beat Street or Crush Groove, you know that that was my look in 1982. So uh, yeah, hip hop was a huge part of uh, growing up. 
um, and also freestyle music, which freestyle is a sort of a subgenre of um, kind of dance music, but played primarily by black and Latino kids. So th- those are the first music I really gravitated towards. And so we're like the same kids into freestyle that were kind of into the early uh, rap stuff that was happening? Uh, some, uh, it was more of a fashion thing. Like, okay. uh, hip hop was kind of tough, you know, like yeah. tough street look freestyle was more like you had to get dressed up, like gel in your hair. All the girls had like, you know, uh, poof their hair up. <laughs> so it was more fancy. So there was, was a marked division between, you know, kids that wanted to keep it more street and kids that wanted to be more like, you know, club like. So yeah. there was a marked division between that. Okay. And so like, I guess at that point were you, you know, we were obviously had this awareness of graffiti. Were you writing already or did you know writers kind of like right from your arrival in New York? Or? Uh, literally from, uh, you know, I started uh, school like in um, beginning of uh, 79, you know, that uh, when even though I went to like a private school, mm-hmm. uh, everyone wrote graffiti, you know, all the guys, <laughs> girls, everyone had a tag. They might not have gotten up, you know, on the walls or whatever, but everyone had a tag. Um, and I, I so did I. I, I had a couple of tags, you know, I wrote um, – I had my little uh, crew of friends, and we did some bombing in the streets in our neighborhood. Um, and when I started high school in 84, uh, I met other writers from all over the city, and a couple of them took me to uh, the train layups. So mm-hmm. I did manage to go a, a couple of times and uh, do you know my, my tag on a train. Um, I, I, I got to say, I, I was never – there's two things I was never um, – I was never good artistically to do graffiti, hmm. and I, I never had the dedication <laughs> to to because you, you could succeed in graffiti even if you're not particularly good, but just like repetition, you know, just bombing as much as possible. So I never had either of those two um, qualities. But I always kept the love for the graffiti, admiring it. Uh, other uh, incredible writers that um, that were prevalent during the the train years, which uh, I would say it ended about I'm going to say '89. Uh, late 80s the whole train era was over but uh, i was glad to uh, be there to see like you know the the early early to mid 80s stuff did you know any of those kids that were in style wars um not directly um no those were like you know when Star wars came out those guys were like you know superstars you know yeah like, yeah is <laughs> the whiz you know men these mm-hmm. are like you know like like legends you know scheme um no i, I never knew anyone directly uh they were older than us too you know like all those guys grew up in the 70s writing graffiti. Um, so they were older than me and my friends. So I never knew anyone really directly. Did any of those, I've always been curious, did any of those guys cross over to like sort of that first wave of punk or any of the early no, stuff? Uh, the Style Wars, I would say more on the rock side. Like, yeah. um, like Is the Wiz, you know, they're all like, you know, rock guys from Queens mm-hmm. uh, that were into like Sabbath. Sabbath, yeah, I was going to say. Stuff like that. But they, they really didn't cross over, um, you know, classic rock, Led Zepp. But um, I can't think of any of those style wars guys that cross over into the hardcore, except for like people like uh, I talk about in my book, uh, Mackie, yeah. who um, who was a big. Inf- he's not directly featured in Style Wars, but he's a he was a big influence on Scheme. Scheme is you know big part of the Style Wars. Mm-hmm. He's a kid, you know, his mom and they're talking in the kitchen. His mom's telling him, you know, wh- why you have to go write on the walls and stuff like that. That part's but, uh, amazing. But Mackie was a, a mentor to Scheme. Really? Yeah, he was like Scheme said he was, they went to the same uh, school up in um, uptown Manhattan. So he was a big influence on Scheme. So indirectly, you know, Mackie is like the like all roads <laughs> lead to Mackie <laughs> as far as like graffiti, hardcore, 
you know, skateboarding, you know, what have you. All roads lead to Mackey's, like the, the original uh, crossover guy for all these subcultures. Well, I guess that answers my next kind of question I had for you, which is, like, was is, is that where the crossover starts? Because, like, you know, in your book, and and certainly now, obviously, there's a because of your book too. There's a greater awareness of, you know, this kind of connection between hardcore and and graffiti. But when did right, that right. start? Like, was it with Mackie? Well, I can pick Mackie and the guys in the Frontline, who I also cover. Yeah, uh, Frontline were all graffiti writers. Mackie was part of, part of Frontline, and uh, but to be honest, with talking to them, you know, back then, you know, eighty eighty one, they really didn't. It didn't give it a second thought, like as far as like, oh, they were they were graffiti writers and then getting into hardcore. It didn't find any particularly, you know, special. It, it's graffiti is something they came from, and then but they were all musically inclined, and then a lot of them, uh, Bad Brains came to town in seventy nine eighty, and uh, they just got a chance to see them and blew them away, and they wanted to start a band like like the Bad Brains. So Frontline sounds a lot like the Bad Brains. Um, but back in that time period, they weren't really conscious, like, oh, you know, it's kind of a uh, unique, you know, you bringing a uh, one youth subculture and bringing it over to another one. They were just kind of doing it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so they, they weren't really, uh, think of anything particularly special. And, uh, a lot of them, uh, they weren't also thinking of, you know, 1980, 81, they weren't thinking of incorporating, for example, uh, none of the guys really did like a frontline piece on a train or anything like that, or their bands. Uh, they were just they weren't really conscious of it. You know, graffiti was something that was in the DNA and they just happened to go on to move on to like the hardcore punk scene. What, but that, uh, that New York hardcore kind of NYHC X, like, you know, right. logo world famous right. logo at this point that comes from graffiti, right? Well, the guy that developed it, his name is Kevin Crowley. Mm -hmm. He was a singer for the abuse. Yeah. Um, he grew up in Manhattan. So, uh, he definitely like, you know, I had friends that did graffiti, um, but from from what I can gather, it, I think it was a little more a sports influence, like the X, uh, and then overlaying the NYHC. So I don't think it was directly influenced the logo, but uh, subconsciously, just growing up the environment, mm -hmm. it kind of it, it could have influenced the logo. Was that ever worked? Like you no, know, now it obviously is too. Once again, but like when did that start showing up in graffiti? Was it with uh, like sort of the '90s DMS stuff? No, or? no, no. I would say more uh, mid '80s. Okay, the, the, and it's showing up in graffiti. Uh, the NYHC uh, symbol uh, became, you know, uh, like bands like Anoxing Front. They, you know, they start putting in all their, uh, you know, shirts, flyers, and Chromax as well. So by the time the the mid '80s uh, second wave of New York hardcore, by the time those bands came along. Like they all start incorporating that NYHC symbol, as well as graffiti. You know, bands like you know, Breakdown, Absolution, Outburst, all those bands. Uh, they all have graffiti writers in them, so they incorporated that NYHC symbol. In okay, well, now we got to get back to your journey. I'm sorry. Sure, <laughs> sure, <laughs> unfortunately, sure. <laughs> that's unfortunately the way this podcast goes. It moves at a that's snail's fine. pace. That's why we have to do par multiple parts. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> but uh, so back to your sort of experience. So you kind of. You know, first, you know, hear punk music through Killing Joke and stuff like that. Were you kind of just like, like searching the dial, or were there punk kids around? Were you seeing punk people in the streets at that point? Um, searching the dial, uh, and also when I started high school in '84, mm -hmm. uh, I met some kids that were into uh, were those skinheads. You know, there were kids that were going to my school. Um, when I started in '84, I was a freshman. I met this guy Joe Bruno. He was a junior. And he was a roadie for uh, Murphy's Law, 
he uh, had a band. He sang a little bit for a band called Armed Citizens. Okay, yeah. Uh, so, and he's he's actually in the uh, Beastie Boys video, um, "Fight for Your Right to Party." He's the the guy with a with a white tank top coming out. But uh, so he was a huge influence. When I got to high school, um, there were some hardcore uh, kids in my school, and th- those are the guys that influenced me as far as um, um, discovering more as, as far as the scene. And also in my neighborhood, there was then I did discover uh, there was a guy named um, Anthony Caminali. He sang for Talking Entry in '85, and yeah. then went on to went on to sing for uh, Raw Deal Slash Killing Time. He was a big influence in a lot of kids in our neighborhood. He was like, you know, um, '84. He, he you know, graduated high school, but um, he lived like ten blocks away from me. And um, a lot of kids in my neighborhood would just go to his house and tape his records, you know, like '86, '87. So he really like kind of tutored us as far as uh, punk and hardcore. So I always got to sing. I just saw him like a couple of days ago, like Killing Time played. And, um, you know, he's always, you know, same as always. He really influenced a lot of guys in the neighborhood. Well, yeah. Like talk about like, you know, the holy trinity of bands, you know, like Raw Deal, Killing Time and Token right. Entry. Right, right, right. Right there. Were like, was it like, were bands almost like neighborhood bands at that point? Or was it too small to be considered like a neighborhood band? It was band? neighborhood bands. When I got into like, uh, in my neighborhood, there were a couple of bands in, um, in Queens. There were, um. More in Northern Queens, uh, we have more access to like uh, garages. You know, mm-hmm. people had like a little parts of Queens a little more suburban, so kids have uh, garages and they would practice in them. You know, band practice and like you know, thirty, forty kids would show up and it would, it would become like a show. You know, <laughs> kids stage diving off the couches stuff like that. <laughs> so uh, those are my really my first. Even though I did go to CBGBs by '85, but a lot of just you know shows that happened because of like you know band practices. So yeah. that, that that was really cool. And it was a neighborhood thing. A lot of bands had never recorded anything, uh, or they did, did they did maybe like a demo. So um, what was your first like? Uh, do you remember your actual first punk show? Because you had been to yeah. rap shows, hip hop shows before, right? Right, right. I do remember the first uh, hardcore show I went to, like uh, the sophomore, nineteen eighty five. And um, this new wave, new wave kid, a friend of mine from school, Filipino kid, he told me about um, you know he saw me you know I was. I was, I was writing on my on the on my uh, school uh, table, my desk, writing some band's names, you know, an NYC symbol. Yeah. So he told me, "Hey, you know, if you like that stuff, you know, you should go you should go check out this place called CBGBs, and they have a, a hardcore man name." So yeah, I went. Um, I'm gonna say fall of '85. He, he took me down to my first show, and uh, I'll, I'll never forget who who played. Um, uh, Deglo Abortions, uh, Canadian band. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, this, this long gone. Knockout James, so like really forgotten New York band. And oh, yeah, what was the deal with Knockout James? You know, I, I've been trying forever to track down their, if they were recorded anything. Yeah. But, you know, they would actually spray paint their name, you know, KO James all over the Lower East Side. So they were like, they had a big, you know, graph, hardcore connection. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, but the headliners were Raw Power from Italy. Oh, my and, God. What an awesome fucking, show. Yeah. They, they fucking, you know, blew me away. You know, it was like really incredible. So I, I never forget that. Like a first show scene, you know, Raw Power and those bands. And, and from then on, I just started going like later on, you know, late 85, 80s. I just be, every Sunday I would go to CBGB's. And my new way friend, you know, never went back. <laughs> he, got, <laughs> he, got, he got scared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah what was it like i guess for those shows were were they already kind of violent by that point yeah i, I would say um there was a sort of a lull i'm gonna say the 85 86 um things started getting a little more violent <laughs> they started steamrolling you know 87 88 to uh 
came to a point in 89 that they you know stopped having shows for a while at CBGB's but um but but that but it was not just i guess if you're read you know history like you know gangs started coming over mm-hmm. but uh it was just a rough neighborhood to begin with you know lower east side you know in that in that time period it was just you know violence fights breaking out left and right and also the the crossover scene started happening about 85 86 so a lot of like metalheads started coming to the show and you know a lot of skinners you know hated metalheads so yeah tons of fights would break out like just for people having you know long hair mm-hmm. um and the funny thing is the skinheads that were you know beating them up a couple of months ago they might have had long hair you know <laughs> and then they <laughs> shaved it in a sort of a rite of passage you know they had a beat up metalhead so all the, all those factors like you know came into play as far as the violence kind of slowly starting um escalating mm-hmm. was there like a, a particular band that kind of caused that shift to happen do you think or or is it just like as you say these natural forces that were i want to say a band um i would always say, hear the circle jerks like it was always every time you hear about someone saying like yeah the circle jerk show happened and then right, shows right. sucked afterwards the most violent shows i remember uh chromax chromax, oh. chromax 1986 those uh there was a place called Rock Hotel at mm-hmm. the Ritz. They were like larger than CBGBs. It could hold about, you know, uh, maybe three, four thousand people. Those are the most violent shows <laughs> I ever saw, you know. Uh, all those factors I just mentioned, like metal and more metalheads uh, started discovering the Chromax. They started coming to the shows. Well, the Chromax started playing with a lot of metal bands. Mm-hmm. But um, there was a whole skinhead contingent that followed the Chromax, and it was just bloody. <laughs> yeah. So I- I'm not saying that they. Um, they cause all this violence, but that's the band I remember where the most violence took place, you know, <laughs> 86. And then um, I got to say the uh, a lot of kids the, like me raising the, in hip-hop, when they started coming into the scene, like, you know, like, eh, I'm going to say 87 or so, 88, they brought a lot of um, that neighborhood hip-hop mentality into the scene as far as violence and gangs. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, a big uh, factor that also contributed to the overall spike in violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's amazing. Like New York that watch sort of, uh, that scene, New York hardcore scene change over the years and just like, you know, and, and obviously keep consistently producing some of the most important bands, uh, in every era, but it's just, uh, it is like a very, uh, from like a very arty scene that, you know, apparently was, right, right. was very kind of like, Almost like hippie vibe at sometimes when people <laughs> right. talk about it. To obviously a very hard scene by the right, time right. of the it, uh, it, 90s. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Well, yeah. Well, it, it like I said, it started escalating in the late eighties and yeah, mm-hmm. the ni- early nineties. It was just kind of <laughs> blew blew out of proportion. Unfortunately, it, a lot. I know a lot of people that um, you know, <laughs> kind of had a hand in kind of um making that happen. So uh, it, it's it's a kind of a you know good and bad feeling you know i know some of the people involved they're good they were you know always good to me but they did some really, really crazy stuff well, to other people yeah well walter uh Schreifels has been on the show a few times and and you know on and we were talking actually last time that he was on about that kind of shift that happened where you have almost like a breakaway scene kind of form and you have the abc no rio and uh the the veriform bands and sort of like the, right, right, right. The, like in you know war dance bands and like this whole right. kind of separate scene when did that start happening to you um i'm gonna say um late 89 uh cbg a couple of factors happened uh cbgb start stopped having mayonnaise for like i'm gonna say like four or six months mm-hmm. 
Uh, and a friend of mine, this guy named Mike Bullshit, who was singing at the time for the band SFA. Then he started a band called Go. Yeah. He um, he found a space in, um, actually, uh, true friends of his, uh, this band called Bugout Society. They found a space on the lower, lower east side, even further down than CBGB's at uh, 156 Rivington Street, uh, ABC No Rio. And uh, they started having shows there. And uh, the first show was there in December 89. Um, I came down um, and it was great. You know, it was just like a, well, maybe like 20, 30 people there, like three bands played. Um, but none of the uh, more predatory people from us in that CBGBC <laughs> came down. So uh, Mike started, you know, he's like, oh, I'm going to do shows regularly. Do you want to help out? And uh, like, sure. Uh, I jumped in. A couple of the friends, like Chaka and Gavin from Burn, they mm-hmm. they started helping out. Um, you know, doing security or cleaning up the place. Um, and I gotta, I have to um, thank them for like Gavin, Chaka, Brandon from SFA. They kind of kept out a lot of the the people that were uh, coming that that stopped the shows at CBGBs. Mm-hmm. They kind of kept those people away. They might have come down like once or twice, but then they. Um, they kind of just, you know, let it go. And then Coney Island High started having shows in, in nine, 1990, so they, they went to towards there. Mm-hmm. So uh, ABC Rio kind of just grew like a like a separate entity, uh, but it was started from by people that were involved in the mid-'80s, you know, CBGB scene. And uh, so kind of overnight, like a new scene sprang, sprung up, you know, like new bands formed, like Citizens Arrest, um, Born Against, Go, uh, Wasipungo, all these bands kind of formed. Um, it was like a separate scene. It was great. Um, Mike Bush had left uh, on a cross country bike tour in the summer of 1990, and he just said to me, "Hey, do you want to like uh, you know book the shows? You know, continue uh, what I was doing." Um, and, I, and I just went for it. I booked shows for about man, I'm gonna say a year and a half mm-hmm. to about late '91. Um, it was it was a great time. You know, it was a very um, the ultimate in you know DIY experience. You know, you know same person. You know. Um, Stamping your hand at the door, same person taking out the garbage, same person <laughs> cleaning out the vomit in the bag, same person chasing out some, you know, drunk guy. So it's the ultimate, you know, as far as <laughs> doing yourself experience. Uh, and it was great. It was a great time. I have some, made some really good friends. Um, and also the uh, graffiti uh, <laughs> um, connection still continued because uh, the front of ABC No Rio in 1990, uh, Sane did a piece saying ABC No Rio in the front. And he also did some um, Saint. I don't know if you're familiar with Saint Smith, mm-hmm. uh, the legendary um, brothers graffiti writers. And yeah. Saint also did a, a a piece in the in the back of ABC Rio that's still standing there. It's an American flag in the intertwined and in the Saint Saint, and that's still standing there. So there was a, you know, a fairly big uh, graffiti connection as well. The ABC Rio scene started. So it was in both scenes, I guess, because like obviously you know like the uh, the more kind of. Uh, the tougher, you know, uh, outwardly tougher kind of New York hardcore scene. There's obviously like a really strong connection to graffiti, um, but the, the, it's also kind of in that DIY scene too. At the same time, yeah, yeah, a little more under the radar. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't as, as prevalent, you know. A, a lot of the the you know quote unquote ABC Norio bands, you know, they never really used you know graffiti in their in their logo. Yeah, but people that wrote graffiti were in those bands, but they kept it more a little more low key. Not as overt as uh, you know the other scene you just mentioned. Yeah, so I guess going back to you once again, um, 
you're you're in high school. You see, you know, your first hardcore show at CBGB's. I'm sorry. Once again, I do apologize that we keep going off topic. No, no, but it's fine. That's, <laughs> I'm loving this. This is amazing for me. So, uh, uh, but so you go to the your first hardcore show at CBGB's, and you know you're you're taken by it right away. Do you kind of go back and are you? What are some of the first neighborhood sort of local shows that you kind of get a chance to see? Um, the first neighborhood, um, like like I mentioned, those. Uh, when I, when I made some uh, friends like by '86 in high school, yeah, uh, neighborhood like people you know kids playing in their basement or the garage, and then uh, a big thing that happened also the summer of '86, um, the Pyramid Club, mm-hmm. Rabies and Ray Capo started doing all ages matinees on Saturdays, and that was really cool as far as um, first time I got to see um, a really the at CBGB it was still a business you know like the the doorman or the the there's a bar it was still primarily a business you know mm-hmm. but pyramid it was just it was run by you know ray and you know rabies would stamp you in the front he'd be out lugging the equipment they they put on the show so it was it was really cool to see like another side of like really grassroots level what you know harker could be yeah that's got to be like one of the first diy spaces uh, I mean, it, it. Well, the first DIY space in New York is A A seven. You know, A seven. Yeah, yeah, the A seven club. That's of the course. first one. Yeah, and um, th- th- I, I, I'm gonna say Ray was, was totally um, influenced by that. You know, he was he mm-hmm. went to A seven back in the, you know, eighty two, eighty three. So I think he wanted to recreate that vibe at Pyramid. Um, but eighty, you know, eighty eighty six. You know, I I didn't know anything about A seven. You know, I, um, it's funny how um, just a couple of years makes such a huge difference as far as like knowledge mm-hmm. um you know 86 you know i, I don't know anyone had gone to a7 um you know pyramid was like our scene yeah. so that was really cool as far as uh that was really stuck me the most that that summer going to shows and I also discovered this uh some records they open up in um i'm gonna say beginning of 86 some records was a a record store on sixth street between second and third avenue and it was all all they carry was hardcore american hardcore <laughs> not even foreign hardcore just american hardcore really they didn't uh, carry any foreign records there not even it was just american hardcore that's all they carry. <laughs> uh this guy Dwayne, uh who's a same same vibe i got from the pyramid shows same it was a tiny little space in a in a basement yeah you know and you know it was just him you know he um, I believe he was in the Midwest, you know, growing up with hardcore and wanted to op- open up a store and support the local scene. So he carried all the local bands' demos, you know, people put up flyers, uh, all the, you know, local bands and, and national bands as well. So that that was huge influence. Some records, um, I started going there religi- religiously every, uh, you know, as much as I, any chance I could get, not just during the weekend. But weekday and just hanging out there any any given time they'd be like you know thirty forty people hanging out inside or outside, uh, and that's where I met actually a lot of uh, kids from uh, from my neighborhood, from Queens. They went to hardcore, they went to skating, and they went to graffiti. So that was a big um, nexus for meeting a lot of people. Yeah, like so. There, I guess there, were there a lot of kids like yourself that were into you know kind of like into hip hop and into yeah, punk yeah. and hardcore at that's, the same time in graffiti that's obviously literally, literally where I met my friend uh, Chaka who I did yeah. a new tape compilation okay, I met yeah, him of course. Uh, I met him hanging out outside um some records you know where you know just started talking and like uh you know where you're from and you happen to live in the neighborhood right right next to me um and you know the graffiti he was kind of getting out of graffiti by the time but he, he wrote graffiti as well mm-hmm. um another big influence also I bought my first fanzines at some records 
Yeah, I was going to say there's um, a big fanzine culture in New York at the yeah, time too, yeah, right? Yeah, I bought uh, a classic uh, New York fanzine called Guillotine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wendy Eager, she was a Brooklyn girl who happened to be living in my neighborhood by that time. And I just devoured, you know, I started buying as many fanzines as I, I could. And by um, 87, I did my own fanzine. I just kind of figured out, hey, I, you know, I could do this. I can interview some bands. Um, I got a friend of mine uh, from high school who's a graffiti writer to do the logo, the cover. And the fan scene was called FTW. Mm-hmm. And my friend did a, a graffiti logo, FTW. Um, and that was the first issue. Well, I only did one issue. And then I did another fan scene, uh, late 87, 88, called New Breed. And that's where um, the second issue is the New Breed tape compilation. Yeah, like one of the most important documents of, I don't know, like the hardcore ever. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> no, it's, and it's it's amazing because like that, as you I'm sure are well aware, was a vi- an often bootlegged thing. So I unfortunately didn't hear it in often an official release when I first heard it. It was just off a CDR that right. someone had. But right, just right. when you go through it and just because you know, and this happens in every scene, but there becomes like bands that are certain like become almost the canon. And that becomes like the official record. But then when you go through the New Breed comp, you're like, oh, there's all these other unbelievable right, right. bands I never <laughs> knew about. And also the, some of those other bands that are part of the canon are on that comp too. Exactly. Right, right, right. How did you guys pick the bands that would wind up on that comp? Was it just bands that you guys were into at the time or was there – It's everyone that we knew. Like once we got uh, – me and Chaka, like everyone that we uh, either knew from a neighborhood or hanging out with some records or hanging out at the Manet. Everyone's just friends, you know. Yeah. <laughs> people I, I was working with, people I went to high school with, uh, people I hung out with, and I went. Oh, they're like, oh, I have a band, um, and we wanted to document um, the. I think the the way it is comp had just come out in 1988, the mm-hmm. Revelation comp, the big one, mm-hmm. and that was great. Um, but there was a newer crop of bands popping up, like 88, late 88, and a lot of them happened to be like just friends of ours. So we asked them, hey, you know, we want to do. Uh, a tape compilation tape chaka had like you know two um uh double tape deck <laughs> that you can make a copy of um i had experience doing a, a zine so we want to do a booklet and yeah. we just asked all our friends to uh, either give us tapes they can record something um either professionally or or live um and we just kind of went for it we just got a, we did a master tape um and we just Picked all the bands that we knew, all the newer bands that we knew, all, all friends of ours. And we got really lucky because a lot of them are just, you know, amazing, amazing bands. Well, it's also amazing because there's so many, like, bands that gave you guys their best songs. Like, what wind up being <laughs> almost their best songs is, like, on the tape comp. Right, right. I mean, uh, the one uh, – I've told the story before, but um, well, also another main reason for doing the comp was to um, – document absolution you know absolution started like 87 and you know just they just blew me and chaco away you know incredible (laughs) live they were like you know our our bad brains you know they were just so good live and um we asked them to uh you know record a song for the comp and uh we got uh we got invited to come down to the recording they recorded don furious yeah and we're sitting there in the studio, you know, jaws were on the floor when we were listening to that song, you know, just so incredible, you know, that never ending game, the song that starts off the comp. Yeah. It's, so we're just super lucky. And I got to say, that's the best recording they, they got, you know, back, well, unfortunately, it, yeah. unfortunately. Well, that's the thing is like, I, I got the seven inch because I was right, yeah, the legend yeah. and then yeah. I got that seven inch and I was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bad mastering job. You know, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what happened to it, but, uh, 
But then you uh, hear the comp and you're yeah, like, just, oh, that I get it now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, and other other uh, as people as well, like um, Collapse, where like a short-lived band uh, featuring Sergio Vega, who's in my book. Mm-hmm. And um, he's a graffiti writer and he went on to Quicksand and Deftones. But he was in a band called Collapse on my comp, another another incredible band that uh, fortunately we have a document of one of the you know best recorded songs on the comp. Yeah, absolutely, and like it's also um, I've always and this is about New York in general. It always seems like New York's like a place where things that couldn't happen in other scenes are able to happen, and I mean specifically bands with seemingly completely divergent politics. Right, able to coexist, <laughs> right, right, even right. on one tape comp. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> that's um, uh, I, I, you know, it's always the the, the big um, example is you know the big on the way it is comp the um, inclusion of you know nausea and YDL. YDL. You know? Yeah, <laughs> people always say that, but you know, at that time, you know, I everyone I knew like they like both. You know, I I love both yeah, yeah. i love I, I, ydl I, I like him better with uh english nick the second singer the one on the comp mm-hmm. when they first came out with the original singer uh, i thought they were okay but i think they're um with english nick i think they're, they're way better and nausea that their first singer neil i think is their, their best singer so yeah. on that comp on that comp uh the way it is comp the relation comp you know they have their the but i think best. their best their best singers on <laughs> that comp and and two of their best songs too so um uh i mean I was never like into more um, conservative side of the political spectrum. Yeah, but uh, you know, really, over years, I I read the base of her, you know, YDL being associated with more far right you know, elements. Um, maybe I could say maybe one of the members. <laughs> I'm not gonna say any name, but the other guys that I know, uh, you know, they were just a little more uh, more conservative, but nothing extreme. Um, and they were. In my mind, I did one of the best American OI bands, you know, ever, uh, besides Iron Cross. But anyway, uh, you do have like on that comp, you've got like yeah, once again, like the uh, an amazing selection of bands, like that I wouldn't imagine hung out together. Are you guys like the link between these bands, or are these bands like connected? They're all playing together at the time. Uh, I guess yeah, we're the link. You know, we're like we're like uh, friends. A lot of them in you know different situations, and yeah, uh, we. Just, yeah, that I guess. Yeah, we're the link. A lot of them, well, some of them played together, but you know, some of them, a lot of them didn't. You know, um, and some of them they were, they didn't play out that much either. So um, yeah, I guess we're, we're the link. So and, and were there bands that you guys asked that couldn't do it? Um, the two big ones I remember. I remember asking the Iceman, who you know loved the Iceman. Yeah, you know, Mackie was playing drums, and I uh, went up to their, uh, guitarist Marco. Outside CBGBs, and I told him, "Hey, you know, me and my friend were doing a tape compilation. If you guys want to be in it, and he was like, um, you know, can you drop a contract? I'll see a contract <laughs> first. You know, it was like you know, eighty-seven. I'm gonna say eighty-eight. You know, like seventeen. We're like, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have no idea what the whole contract. You know, so we we, we never. I didn't pursue it any any further. Yeah. So I would love to have um, the Iceman back in then. And then also, <laughs> this is my own embarrassing side story. Um, I would kind of try and playing. I tried playing guitar by '87, '88. So when we're doing the comp, I was like, "Oh, maybe I get a band together and we'll do a song, so I can include it in the comp." So I asked a couple of friends of mine to, um, you know, help me out. So we did. We got a band together. Uh, we actually went to Don Fury. <laughs> we recorded a song, 
but I just didn't like the way it sounded. I was like, I get, when I was comparing to like you know Absolution or you know Life's Blood, like you know it doesn't doesn't compare. Yeah. So I never included her on my band on the comp either. Really? Did I mean, yeah. has that song ever come out at all? I, I just I just put it on the uh, on the Urban Styles mixtape. Oh, awesome! <laughs> Twenty Twenty eight years later, <laughs> actually, when I hear it now, it, w- it wasn't that bad. I know, I know, what was I thinking? <laughs> well, I imagine, yeah, at the time, you're also like, you know, in the company of, of giants yeah. too. Yes, very self. I, mean, I want to listen to it. You know, it's not that bad. <laughs> no, no, I know. Like that's the thing. Is like even now, like I I playing in a band. I I don't know if I would ever want to be on the new breed comp just because I don't want to be that song that everyone's like, Oh, that's the weak song on the comp. Yeah. <laughs> that's the one that I want to skip right, right, over. Right, right. Um, so. so I guess, uh, the other thing I've always kind of wanted to know about, uh, the, the comp is the life's blood stuff on it. I'm a huge fan of life's blood and that band. How were they looked at by like the other scene in New York where like, did they fit into, to both scenes or were they kind of decidedly one scene? No, they were they were hugely popular uh, on both. Yeah, like everyone, like but I know, like Love Lies Blood. You know, um, for the comp, we have um, two live sets, had, right? Yeah, but they had, if I remember correctly, they had just broken up in '88. Okay, but um, I asked uh, Adam, the guitarist, a friend of mine, I asked him if I could right before they broke up. Well, they had their their uh, the singers on the seven inch had left. So they got this guy, Sean Murphy, to sing. Mm-hmm. He also sang for Collapse on my comp. So I asked Adam, hey, you know, um, I know you guys just put a 7-inch. I want I really want you to be in the comp. Can I use a couple of songs with Sean singing? So Sean is the one singing on the uh, the two live songs on, on the compilation. Oh, that's right. So it's, it's not the original singing Jason. But he yeah. did a great job. He sounds great. and No one really can tell <laughs> that it's, yeah. it's not it's not Jason singing. So the, I just really wanted him to come. I mean, Life's Blood were, were a huge influence as far as, uh, you know, blending, um, like, uh, stylistically, like, all the artwork. It, it looked like like Void, you know, like an old yeah. early 80s hardcore stuff. But then musically, you know, they blended. They, there was some kind of O-ish kind of, like, tendencies. Um, it did, it sounded like a classic hardcore record that could have come out in '83. You know that that's how good they were. Uh, I can't say that about too many bands. You know in that time period, but it could have easily fit in. You know, like in DC, Boston era. Mm-hmm. You know, no one, no one better than I. So they, they were just incredible band, and um, yeah, everyone, both any scene, love. You know, they they love them, especially when Adam went on to start um, Born Against. So. That that you know, Borgans was a huge influence in the early '90s, uh, especially ABC No Real scene, and you know, all over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Born Against was like, I don't know, at the time for a time they were the band in, right, in right, hardcore. Right. You know, uh, well, I guess for some people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, different, yeah, different scenes. I didn't care about wasn't too much. <laughs> <laughs> was like, was that palpable at the time in New York? Like, obviously, there's that famous. Debate. Yes, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But like, as someone going to shows, could you kind of feel that tension around the scenes at that time? Well, I mean, a lot of people that were like, you know, let's say going to see Sick of It All, you know, in '91, they weren't going to see, you know, Born Against, yeah, <laughs> at ABC in Rio. So it was like, kind of, yeah, there were some, but there was a huge division between. So, um, and a Born Against show at ABC, you never feel any kind of like, you know. Try to violence, you know, at a point again. So, you know, so that it was totally different. Um, but by, by that time period, 
when there was and a scene, and, and, and the scene was big enough to hold all these like different scenes. You know, they were all yeah. hardcore, but like different. And there was also a huge um, squatter squatter rat scene, mm-hmm. like squatter bands, um, more like I guess crusty bands, and they had their own separate thing going on as well. So the scene was big enough to hold these three different like uh, universes. Well, there's also then, yeah. and there's like a fourth universe too, because isn't there that like sort of New York noise rock, Noiseville? Yeah, oh, like the most post, like yeah, more like AMRAP, like yeah, yeah the AMRAP was, stuff. Yeah, but that that was a little different. A lot, a lot of those guys didn't really didn't really come from uh, the hardcore scene, except for like um, who am I thinking of? Um, I think one of the insane guys came, but that, that was yeah. a whole totally different. Like, but that was all across the country. The post. Um, Post hardcore scene, the AMRAP, touch and go stuff. That was a totally, totally different thing too. But did like I was gonna say, did that crossover at all? Like because uh, you know, as you said, there's unsane. Um, well, it it did as far as bands uh, uh, taking that sound, like maybe like ninety two, ninety three bands like um, Die One Sixteen and mm-hmm. Hell No. Mm-hmm. They were hugely influenced by that that noisy scene, and they brought that onto. Even though they were playing ABC in Rio, that they were playing like more like noisy post-hardcore stuff so they were influenced more uh by the sound i've always been like intrigued by that noiseville records too the fact that they put out right, like, right. you know like these incredible hardcore records and then they're also putting out action swingers records right right there's a there's a connection to new breed there's a, a high school friend of mine he he sang for a band called under pressure and the new breed comp yeah and then in 91 he was in this band called accidental tribe oh really <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the tall, noisy rock. Yeah, I think they, they toured with Gigi Allen. It was crazy. Yeah, I'm looking at. Like, I have my Noiseville records all in one box, and I'm looking up right, at the right. record at the front of the box right now. <laughs> yeah, so he he was he's uh, by '91 he had moved moved on to that that type of like kind of noisy, uh, more psychedelic rock stuff. But uh, yeah, that, that that's a connection. So yeah, but uh, Jim uh, Gibson from Noiseville, he, he was a he was just a huge um, influence. A lot of people up in Yonkers, Westchester. You know the breakdown guys. You know, he, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, he was also a huge uh, noise it's, noise fan. So yeah, that Inside Out band too. The, exactly, the, exactly. Who you know, a lot of people talk about Inside Out. I really don't remember them. I never saw them, and I bet you never really listened to them. So, um, but a lot of people talk about them. You know, um, I guess they were a big deal. Like uh, uh, maybe now, you know, Inside well, like, Out. The New York Inside Out. Yeah, it's like the Mother Records scene. Like at the time, right, right. that was around was like, yeah, that stuff was not on the radar. But now exactly. record collectors act like it's right. the yeah, most yeah. important yeah. stuff ever. But uh, yeah, Jim Gibson, Noiseville, a great guy. He really had um, just a love for music overall. Could be New York hardcore or noisy stuff, you know? Yeah, what a label. Like I love anytime you see a label where it's like that, where it's not just one genre, but it's kind of in right. multiple worlds. Yeah, you see an unholy swell. 12 inch next to a breakdown 12 inch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great, great guy. Uh, if only that bill existed in real life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's great. And he has a, um, open up a record store called Big Jim's Records. Okay. Which, which I'm going to say it's somewhere in Westchester. Yeah. Oh, well, I've got to make a trek out there because I imagine I've got some holes in that collection I need to fill in. Right. <laughs> where did Frontline kind of fit in scene wise? Obviously, this is early, they're much earlier on, but where- Frontline, you know, eighties. I didn't know anything about them. You know, um, yeah. It would. They, no one my age. I mean, of course, the older people that saw them, you know, remember them. But anyone my age, you know, eighty seven, eighty eight. I, I didn't know anything about Frontline. Um, even the nineties. Um, 
somewhere along the line, I, I learned that you know that that Beastie Boys song, um, "Time for Living," on Check Your Head. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a frontline instrumental that um, they took the instrumental part and they shouted uh, Sly Stone lyrics on top of it. Um, somewhere in the nineties, I learned that was a frontline song. That, that was my first, um, uh, I guess, awareness of frontline. And also seeing them in old um, flyers, you know, A seven flyers to play A seven a lot. Um, and then when American Hardcore um, book came out, uh, Frontline's mentioned, you know, a couple of times as being Mackie's first band. Mm-hmm. So that's what I, I guess I really started to really dig, dig more into them. And then through the course of doing the book, that's when I really like found out, you know, everything about them. <laughs> you know, yeah. I try I tracked down all the members who are, you know, still around, and uh, it's, it's fast fascinating story. The those guys, you know, they're really like the originators of the synthesis. You know, without you know they weren't aware of conscious of that you know back then but they're really the first ones to bring that whole graffiti influence into new york hardcore so like and i guess they're they're playing with a seven bands at the time right and i guess right mackie kind of goes in there uh, so it's from there that i guess other bands were seeing them their graffiti there or meeting them and is that spreading throughout the scene from there not really, because uh, like I said, we, when the, once they had Frontline, they really didn't incorporate the graffiti into, into the band yeah. angle, you know. So, uh, no, I, I would say no. It, it, anyone, it, they kind of kept it separate. So, yeah, they were graffiti writers, but they really, they really, you know, other people didn't really know about that back then. So, they really, yeah, I, I, will, I wouldn't say there was a, they were like spraying the message, you know. They weren't, like I said, talking to them, they really didn't think twice about it. You know, they grew up doing graffiti. That was something that they did, yeah. and then they moved on to the hardcore part. But they didn't really like try to promote themselves as a graffiti New York hardcore band, you know. They're like you know uh, one of these bands that you know almost lost to to time until you know resurrected by yourself and of course the mentions in American hardcore and stuff, right, right. and and the Beastie no, oh, Boys. No. Yeah, and also the the New York hardcore book that Tony put out, and Tony's book, of course, yeah, yeah as well. Yeah, absolutely. The, Tony, Tony was just on the show like two weeks ago. Oh, so. great, great. Tony's the best. Tony's yeah, I love, love Tony. Met absolutely. Him, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and they were, if you ever listen, Frontliner, incredible. Yeah, <laughs> like they they had like three uh, vocalists during their um, uh, lifespan, but you know they sound they're hugely influenced by the Bad Brains, so they have that Bad Brains sound, and they also bring on other elements to it. Um, there's also a hip hop connection to them because the original, uh, two of the original singers mm-hmm. went on to do, uh, in the nineties, they did a production, uh, a record production team called stimulated dummies. And they were responsible for producing what they call, uh, the golden age of New York hip hop in the nineties. Yeah. Like, you know, brand Nubian, all for yeah. one. Um, oh, that's crazy. yeah, they, they, produ- they're, they're, if you look, uh, it's, it's um, the first two singers of Frontline and this guy, Dante Ross. They're stimulated dummies, and they produce all that classic, like leaders of the new school, um, or, um, organized confusion, all that classic um, early 90s uh, New York hip-hop. Yeah, they wow. produce all that stuff. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah, that's like, yeah, it's pretty wild. <laughs> man, talk about being in two amazing scenes at once or in yeah, one lifetime. They, they really, they really like cross over like, uh, you know, from graffiti to hip-hop to mm-hmm. hardcore to skateboarding. You know, they, they were just the pioneers of all that downtown fusion. Uh, like, what were some of the other ba- – is there any other band you think that has been kind of forgotten from New York that – that was on that kind of level as far as important. There's one band that uh unfortunately I couldn't really like 
incorporate there's a band that even like the most diehard you know um encyclopedia of new york hardcore guy won't know about <laughs> and there's a band called filthy sex filthy and sex they, exactly sounds like there some were, chris minicucci they were like they were around 81 82 um, actually chris chris minicucci is one of the only guys that wouldn't know that yeah i was gonna say it. like if chris doesn't know him then, then there's no hope for it <laughs> they played a seven um and they had two graffiti writers in the band called uh hesk h-e-s-k and a guy called maniac and they were up you know pretty well up writers mm-hmm. um but they never as far as i can tell never recorded anything um and they just kind of got lost in time but they were they were another band that had that that connection as well you know oh that's awesome what a name too yeah like, no. <laughs> besides like i mentioned on a couple of flyers there's like literally nothing, nothing. about them anywhere <laughs> yeah there's like it's it's incredible the the deluge of bands that came out of like the new york hardcore scene like you know just even on bands that did manage to record how many tapes are kind of right, out there right. of bands and stuff like that or how many different lineups these bands had right um, right right uh I, as i say like i could punish you all day about this no, and I, I, I love talking about this stuff <laughs> uh, well like i would love to have you back for a part two at some point sure man because, of course. Um, no problem uh because as i say we can talk a lot more were you like able to kind of stay in contact with anyone you know from peru throughout this to kind of find out what was going on with peruvian hardcore well i was lucky enough that my mom would take me to peru um pretty much every summer okay most summers like in the 80s she took well some summers she didn't because I don't know if it's, I don't know if you know about the situation in Peru in the eighties. Yeah. It was yeah. it was <laughs> horrific, <laughs> rough mm-hmm. as far as like the uh, terrorism and war going on. So a couple of years I didn't go, but I did manage to go. I remember one summer in particular. I went to summer of um, eighty eight. I went down there, and uh, you know I was fully into hardcore then. So um, I met a a pen pal friend a friend of mine who's from Peru. And he had sent me stuff, you know, um, 87, 86. He sent me demos, you know, local bands. So I knew there was, you know, all the stuff was going on. Yeah. So I did manage to go uh, a couple of shows the summer of 88. And uh, also during the early 90s when I went uh, in the summers, I went to a lot of a lot more shows in Peru. Um, and that, that was awesome. You know, I managed to put out a, a record for by a Peruvian band in um, 93 who I thought were awesome, called, a band called uh, Futuro Incierto. Yeah, I put out a seven inch by them, and um, they're huge. <laughs> they just still play out like once a year, like in Lima, like at a stadium. You know, they have like thousands of people show up, <laughs> so it's, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, but I, yeah, I got to just, I, I got to see some. Um, oh, I have that seven inch, the nouveau. Yeah. V- oh, I, well, it's not, yeah, you do. yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's right. That's I that's and the one. that's the that's actually the first uh, like international hardcore record. I think I got or one oh, of the really? first. Ones. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, I do know. I was like, why do I have that so, so familiar? So they're, they're really popular still this day. Yeah. They, they went on to, uh, um, mid late nineties. They did like, maybe I'm going to say maybe like three or four albums. Oh, crazy. Um, and then, uh, then the, then the members moved away. Like I know the single lives in Australia now and, um, guitar lives in, in the States, but once a year they do like a reunion show. They, they all come back, um, I think in the summer and they do a, you know, a reunion show. And like the, I think they did it this year and was at the national stadium and it was like literally like five, 6,000 people there. It was incredible. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> they're like a big deal. Like, yeah, they're like, um, so it's pretty wild. I got, you know, I got to put out their first record and, um, a great, great, great bunch of guys too. 
Yeah, yeah. Like that, uh, that. I love that single. What were some of your other bands that you were kind of seeing, even that you saw on those early trips that really stuck out to you? Stood out well, to the, you the, the early, like mid-80s, uh, there was a boom in the um, mm-hmm. Lima and Lima as far as hardcore. There was like dozens of bands. The ones that I got to see were incredible. Was a band called uh, G3. Um, they were like one of the legendary um Lima hardcore bands, uh, a band called Chaos, K A O S. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually had to, uh, the singer had to actually uh, flee the country because um, some of the lyrics they were talking about the uh, you know government and the, how they were um, they were no different than the terrorism going on, and somehow um, authorities <laughs> found out about it. So they he had to flee the country for that. So it was like a pretty serious, you know. There's a lot. Of, I know there's a lot of violence going on at CBGBs in New York, but it's like a whole other level, you know. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> the thing. Like uh, you know, you hear about punk rock in in Latin America during the '80s, right. South America during the '80s, and it's it's in so many countries. It's like, oh, this is real. Like this is not yeah, yeah. people singing about some theoretical situation. This is no. people dealing with it every day. This I remember going to the show in '88 that summer, and like. Um, like the army showing up, you know, coming outside, they were like, you know, soldiers with machine guns, you know, stopping the show. So wow. <laughs> it was a, a lot different. <laughs> it's pretty wow, wild. Yeah. <laughs> and, but uh, it's, uh, it's amazing how much um, it was, they had a whole name for it, uh, sub- subterranean rock, subter rock. Okay. That's the name of their, their scene. There's a comp, there, right? Yeah. There's some great comps. There's a book came out. Unfortunately, it's in Spanish, but um, there's some great documents of the whole scene. And mm-hmm. then there was some uh, leucemia, Attaque Frontal. My friend yeah. who uh, actually, um, he was my pen pal. I became pen pals with him. He was a drummer for Attaque Frontal. What an amazing band. Incredible oh. band. Uh, I'm still friends with him. And I go down to Peru. I see him all the time. Were they? Uh, are but, they popular down there? Like, well, is- they, um, the, the uh, guitarist died and the singer moved to uh, Miami. Okay. <laughs> it's a funny thing. Like a Rorschach tour miami like in 92 yeah they were they're like they, they call me they're excited oh the singer from attacker from Tal came to see us <laughs> <laughs> they were so excited about that but um yeah they they they're huge now they're like the most legendary like peruvian hardcore bands attack it from Tal. yeah no i know i know they're certainly legendary like outside but i was always wondering right like, if they're one oh, of they're huge huge yeah too, yeah yeah huge a big deal down there like very influential There's, and then they managed to do a a seven inch this French label put out their um their seven inch. I was just gonna say that's a, like that new wave records that put out their right. seven inch, that's one of those labels that what an amazing job of documenting international exactly. hardcore. Right, right. Like it's so many killer records from all over the world they put I think they put out there's a band from Singapore they put out. Yeah, they the, started doing a lot of stuff. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh the Tour de France seven inch. They had another um another, another Peruvian band on it. Yeah, great great label um yeah so i talk about one of the more uh, there's a band called narcosis mm-hmm. who uh, became friends with guitar another legendary band there they had an incredible scene in the uh, mid 80s uh, unfortunately a lot of them was just demos yeah but now in the past four or five years they've been um reissued on vinyl you know so it's you get to hear the, the stuff is incredible yeah it's, it's i think you know much much like some records policy in the 80s uh unfortunately generally in hardcore in the top part of North America, like Canada and America specifically, it's, you don't really get the whole story because you don't really find out about a lot of the incredible international scenes that were going on at the time. And it's only, it seems like in the last sort of few years that now yeah, these reissues are coming. Yeah. yeah. And it's great. Um, and it's still like, 
to this day is a huge uh you know hardcore scene in uh in lima and all over peru but you know hardcore scene is pretty big and uh like sick of it all went down there like you know not too long ago so and you know played to thousands of people so there's a huge healthy scene down there for, for all that stuff well, as I say, Freddie, I would love to talk to you forever, and sure, I'd man. love to have you on for a part two if sure. you're down to come back. Sure, I, I would love to talk about the actual uh, people in the book. You know, a lot of yeah. the writers in the book. So yeah, when I get, I'd love to do a second part. No problem. Absolutely, that'd be amazing to have you back on. Um, as and and this, I've, there are a few on the wraparounds for the show. I will do proper plugs for the book, but Thank it you. is Thank an you. incredible document, and uh, I can't think of a book, as I said, off the top that I've anticipated more than this book, just because, you know, as we said, it's like the Rosetta stone, like it links to, <laughs> uh, seemingly to, to a lot of people that I guess are on the complete outside divergent worlds, but people that are on the inside worlds that, you know, like how did they come together? And it's right in this right. book, you really see how. Cool. Great. Good to hear. I love to, I love hearing as much feedback as possible. You know, we, um, and even though, um, you know, the book has my name on the cover, but it's, it was a whole group effort you know mm-hmm. a lot of people helped me out you know from getting material um to supplying sources to uh the, my layout designer did an incredible job uh, orlando arce he's also like a queen's hardcore graffiti guy so it was amazing i didn't have to tell him a lot of stuff he just knew what how to lay it out if you see the layout the layout was just incredible you yeah. know so a lot to him uh steve Delodovico, the editor you know really sharpened a lot of um stuff you know were edit you know were put strategically so uh it's it's a group therefore that's really um helped make the book look as good as it does you know i'm not just saying that because my book but uh, all the people have that have no um you know no relation to either either scene just by looking at it, it looks incredible you know yeah and it's and it's a very important book like it's something that you know like this this is something that needed to be documented and needed to kind of be put put down into text and and so you, all of you did the good work Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for your interest, man. Thank you. Oh, dude. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Freddie, for coming on the show. And so Freddie can be found, uh, you know, on on social media as someone that I strongly recommend you follow because someone that I've learned a lot from over the years and stuff he's written for No Echo and other places. He's a really good writer and a fellow traveler on the world of trying to obtain punk knowledge. Someone that I've learned, as I say, tons from. Tons and tons and tons from. Speaking of learning, next week I learn the true meaning of the holidays because I have a gift for myself, hopefully a gift for you. No, it is a gift for you. It's a gift for all of us. Next week on the show, musician, uh, 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 rock star, uh, Playwright, Kevin Drew. That's right. Uh, Kevin Drew is coming on the podcast. Uh, it is an incredible episode. One of my favorite people in the whole world. We talk about a lot of funny stuff on this thing. It's a, a real nerd out fest. It's a really fun, nerdy time. Hopefully, you will join us next week. I really strongly recommend that you do. And that's it. Uh, go out there. Make your own culture. Do this because, you know, no one will do it better than you do it. And uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, happy, have, happy, have a very happy holidays. Right now, um, my uh, wife is away 
And so I'm just here with the three kids by myself. And I'm telling you, I have really learned to appreciate what she had to go through a little bit more. I always understood it to on some level, but I couldn't truly understand it until I lived through it for this uh, extended period right now with colds and school and stuff. But so, Lauren, if you hear this, uh, I really thank you. Thank you for everything you do because, oh, my gosh, to do what you do and work. All, everyone, everyone who holds it down, working at home and then having to work out in the workforce or just having to work at home, period, you know, it's hard. It's hard. I I recognize the struggle that we all have to do that. But, you know, that's that's the price we pay for choosing to populate the world for another generation. So I guess that's what we're going to have to live with. So shout out to all the parents or anyone that uh, is, uh, is saddled with uh, <laughs> the loving duty of raising children. Um, well, I'm off to make dinner. I will see you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And, uh, yeah, love you.